Reality's chasing the boogeyman across the Spider-Verse, and Amanda's mad about the boy. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. Hello and welcome back to the show. Uh, we have got a load of brand new movies to chat about with Van today. Uh, we are going to start with something actually, which I read the synopsis for, and I thought, do you know what? This is actually my kind of movie. It's called Reality. What did you think? Tell us all about it. Well, you know, you, you said uh, you said the synopsis excited you before we before we came. Yeah. On. And and I specifically said, did you know what the stuff missing from that synopsis? I'm going to add to it. I'm going to make you even more excited. By the way, before we start, do you, do you watch a, a series called the Punk Rock MBA? It's a YouTube series about uh, about classic uh, punk rock music. No, no, it's never heard of it. I, I just watched the new one earlier this evening, and uh, it was all about one hit wonders. And I was very curious. I know you are a music guy. And there's two conversations yeah. I want to have with you about music real quick. Uh, the first one is, in, in a conversation about one-hit wonders, do you think Bowling for Soup should be included in that conversation? No. No, they're not one-hit wonders. Like, factually, they're not one-hit wonders. Correct. Right. Okay, just just checking that's not me. The second <laughs> one, the second one, and this was on Twitter today, so film Twitter today, a couple of us like film bros on film Twitter, had a, had a conversation in it today about how much we missed uh, theme songs in movies. And I know you and I have had this conversation before. I miss theme songs in movies. I miss Seal doing uh, you know, a music video on the set of Batman Forever that's completely unrelated, or you know, someone like LL Cool J rapping, the, rapping nonsense lyrics about a movie. I love that stuff. Um, what's your favorite theme song from a movie, just out of interest? Oh blimey! Theme song. See, I, theme song. Because I, I had money. I had money on you coming up immediately. Be like, take my breath away from Top Gun or uh, Danger Zone doesn't count. It's not really a theme song. But um, I suppose, uh, I suppose, take my breath away would be one of top high up there. I mean, uh, not a theme song, but Back to the Future. The soundtrack for me is. Oh, uh, technically, that has a theme song. Because it's uh, the power of love. The power of love by Huey Lewis in the news is the theme song to to theme, to, to Back to the That would be one, number number one. Yeah, that would be yeah. my number one. By the way, spoiler alert: we are going to be talking about Back to the Future in relation to a different movie later in this show. Just so you know. Oh, okay, that's quite exciting. Yeah. One and of my favourite movies. Flat, flattering comparison. Don't worry. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. All right. I look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, then reality. Back to reality. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Back to, back, to, back to life, back to reality to keep the musical theme going. So, reality is a new movie starring Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria, who's something of a rising style at the moment. A new movie written and directed by uh, Tina Satter. And I use the term written in the loosest possible sense. Okay, so what happened is are you aware of the story of Reality Winner? A, a young no. lady named Reality Winner. So, in, I think it was 2017, she was arrested by the FBI and detained for leaking classi supposedly classified information that exposed Russian involvement in election rigging. And if you think, if you think about how this was 2017, that's a very, very specific election. Now, when the FBI turned up at her house, they hit record on a little pocket digit record, digital recorder, and the recording of that interview is the script for this movie. We are told wow. straight off the bat they've not changed a single line of dialogue. This is the script. The actors are simply delivering the lines that have already been recorded. And every now and again, you get it into cuts with actual imagery of the real person, the photos the actual FBI took and things like that. But otherwise, it's a restaged you know, uh, performance of the actual recording. So you have Sidney Sweeney as Reality Lee Winner, who is a, uh, a government, an independent government contractor. 
fact, he was about 27, 28 years old in reality, um, who leaked the information about the uh, about Russian involvement with election rigging to a publication who then didn't do their due diligence. And because they published the documents in a hurry, they happened to leak all the details that allowed them to identify who had leaked the information in the first place. I've got a clip for you. This is the FBI still being relatively civil at this point as they start to rummage through her home. Remember, they've got a warrant. This is all legal. They just want to make sure that she's she's willing to assist them and help deal with her pets. Have a listen. We're, um, just safety's sake, where the, uh, there's your weapon in the... The weapon, uh, that's right. By the little table with the lamp right under the bed. Your cat's under there. He's under the bed. Or she's under the bed. The AR's in the case in here? Yes. Where's the other gun? It's behind it or against the wall in the block case. Can you get your cat? Do you want to get your cat? Can you? Do you want to get your cat? Do you want to get your cat? Get your cat. I love movies where you learn something from watching it and that are based on true stories, etc. So, so you're saying that this is a mixture. It's not just real footage and it's not just acting. It's a mixture of the both. Exactly. Now, it made me think uh, immediately of American Animals, which I think was 2017. If you never saw that, it was an actually brilliant documentary from Bart Layton uh, that actually used a talking head documentary format and then would cut in between to recreations of what they were actually talking about as played fictitiously by Evan Peters and now Oscar nominee Barry Keown and BAFTA winner Barry Keown, um, which you've never seen, amazing movie. This is also very good. Another film you can compare it to actually, uh, incidentally, is uh, Compliance with Dreamer Walker, absolutely harrowing movie. Um, this, not quite as harrowing as either of those. It's a lot more static, three people in, in a sort of derelict kitchen, a very empty kitchen, having a conversation. But it's a real conversation. Uh, you know, that, that really happened. And you get, as they t- say, like literally as the FBI will take a photo, for instance, the camera flash will then immediately cut to the actual FBI photo oh, that was taken and then cut back. And every now and again, the screen will cut to uh, the, the moving sound form, the moving waveform of the actual recording, for instance. And it's quite cleverly done. Now, I didn't know Sydney Sweeney prior to this movie, other than, I knew her for two things, by name only, she's just been cast in Sony's 19th ridiculous Spider-Man spin-off, Madam Web, with Kristen Stewart, I think, and uh, again, I don't know who's asking for one of those, Uh, but also she's in Euphoria, that's a show I haven't watched, I've never seen Euphoria, Zendaya is also, weirdly, from Spider-Man, to me, but, uh, so I didn't know her, having seen her in this, though, that's a solid performance, I can see why she has the fans she does. She's got some chops. It really works. And the FBI agents who are played by uh, Josh Hamilton, I think he's from The Bourne Identity, and then there's Marshawn Davis uh, from Tuscaloosa. Really great performances as well. Really, They straddle a line. They don't come in too hard. They don't come in too aggressive. And bear in mind that this is obviously based on you know a, a real recording. You know, this is taken from a real recording. You have to imagine they are playing it as close to the, the vest as possible. And the nuance that they in particular bring to this works gangbusters. It's an absolutely terrific set of performances from them. Like I say, they don't come in too hard. They don't come in too soft. It's exactly the tone you imagine it has to have been. Now, the political setting of it makes it a lot more interesting than it's come out, you know, a couple of years after that administration has, you know, come to its thankful end. And it's a story that I was aware of in passing, but not too up on the specifics of. 
Now, I came away from this feeling like, actually, there's not a lot m more that I need to. I did read upon it after the fact. And if you don't know the story, I, I suggest genuinely do read up on it. I think you'd really enjoy this, though. I think this is a really suspenseful, like a, like a dialogue-driven dramatic thriller, for lack of a better term. I think it's quite tightly handled by Tina Satter as well, directorially. I think it works really, really well. You're talking about looking up things. This is mm. exactly the kind of movie that I know I will watch. Then yeah. I will fall down an internet hole and be <laughs> reading up on all of the details on this until mm. three in the morning and then suddenly go, oh, I better go to bed. So I, I am well up for this. It does sound brilliant. How long is it, by the way? Do you know? Uh, 82 minutes. This thing is 82 minutes long. This this thing is short. This it's, it's, it's about the same length as the finale of Ted Lasso was this week, to put that in comparison. Although I cried less at this, obviously, than the end of Ted Lasso. I'll just be upfront about that one. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, well, I'm 100% going to be watching this. And if you want to make your own mind up, it is in cinemas from today. It's called Reality. In a moment, we are going to do two in one, actually. We're going to look at Mad About the Boy, the Noel Coward story. In fact, isn't he a sir? I, he may be, actually. I believe I he, he is. is. Yeah. Anyway, irrelevant to the film title, I suppose. They didn't want to count it in, so it's not there. Um, so we'll talk about that, and we will also talk about Amanda in just a moment. So stay right where you are. Hello and welcome back to the show. In a moment, we are going to talk about Mad About the Boy, the Noel Coward story, uh, an exploration of Coward's expansive career and more, I'm sure. Uh, but first, let's start with Amanda. So talk to me about this. What was this about? So Amanda is a new movie that forms the directorial debut for writer-director Carolina Cavalli. And uh, I believe it's a, a, a French... I think it's, oh, sorry, it's, uh, it's Italian. I think it's Italian. It's about a 24-year-old girl named, cleverly enough, Amanda. So not just a, you know, not just a pithy title. It's, it's actually her name. And she's something of... I, I, don't, I think I would describe her as a sarcastic curmudgeon, for lack of a better term. She, you know, single parent family. She has an older sister who has, uh, who, who in herself is a single daughter, single mum. Has uh, a, a, the sister's a bit affluent in her own right, and a bit of a sort of what I would describe as a waitrose parent, for lack of a better term. And uh, Amanda finds a certain level of sort of gleeful, you know, uh, sarcasm in, to, to be mined out of this. But her sort of misanthropic ways are leaving her on her own. Like, she's obsessed with, you know, all of the missed opportunities of life, all the things that pass her by. Actually, she's not unlike me now, I think about it. I'm actually quite I was just going to say that. I'm quite a worse person <laughs> than I think I am now that I'm saying it out loud, if I'm being really honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to not bring this up in therapy, I think, this week. Um, <laughs> do not talk about this movie. Talk about Ted Lasso, fine, again, but not this movie. Um, she decides, upon discovering that her mum's best friend had a, had a daughter the same kind of age as her and that they were separated when they were youngsters, she sort of decides that destiny has robbed her of a best friend. You know, these circumstances and fate and fortune took away the person that was clearly meant to be her best friend, just as their mums were best friends. So she effectively forces the friendship you, me, and Dupree style, only way nastier and way more like jaded and bitter upon this hapless shutting of a would-be darker timeline best friend named Rebecca. Now, we've not got a clip for this because it's a subtitled movie and 
well, that'd be a very niche audience. Um, I want to single out the performance in at, at the centre of this from uh, Benedetta. I will look at the surname Pocciaroli. Benedetta Pocciaroli as as Amanda is brilliant. Like, because the person I have just described to you is the worst person in the universe, and yet. Portrelli makes makes her kind of really investable and really likable in a sort of off-kilter, dark-hearted way. And at the side of it all, you have Rebecca, who's played by uh, Galatelia Belugi, I think she is. And uh, that's another one where you're not quite sure where that's going to go, because she starts off being kind of equally unlikable, but they win you over really, really quickly. And the chemistry between them which is a sort of, like I say, a begrudging chemistry, almost like a, a sort of begrudging psycho thriller, you know, nutter and victim kind of a, a chemistry. It okay. really works. It's really investable, and you really start to get drawn into it. I thought it was really, really compelling. Let's say that central performance, though, of Amanda, that is worth the film entirely on its own. It, it's it's very funny. But it's funny in a, just a, a, I'd say, a really nasty way, just a really dark-hearted way. If you were to make this into, you know, an English language adaptation, you'd have to have done it 15 years ago and used uh, what was Elliot Page's previous name, Ellen Page. This would have been Ellen Page 15 years ago doing this movie, and and that's about the only thing. I, or, or you know, 10 years ago with Kristen Ritter or something like that. It's the only way you could have ever adapted this into things. I don't think you could do it beyond that. Maybe, maybe five years ago with Kristen Stewart. Maybe. But it's one of those that you can never adapt this like into the English language at the moment because I don't think there's an actress who pull this off in the same way. It's a really, really specific tone and a really, really individual sensibility. And it, they pull it off with absolute aplomb. And for a directorial debut, I think this is absolutely stellar. Absolutely, just wonderful. I really, really love this. I can't wait to watch this again because I say I, I chuckled. I uh, we had a bit of a, a tech fault in our screening because we had to come all the way from Spider Verse at Sony, which is at Paddington, and this screening was at Curzon Soho, and it was I think we had uh, forty minutes to get there, and it's basically about twenty-five minutes on the tube. And then we got in there and they messed the screen up. It was overshot. And the subtitles were below the screen, so they had to reset the film. So I had to leave early and then watch the rest on link. So I kind of wanted to watch this split up. But for the time, like for the 12 hours between when I left that screening and actually getting to watch the rest of it at home, because I fit in Boogeyman in between, I was, I, I, it stuck with me. I was, I was like, I have to know how this ends. I was really into that. And it didn't disappoint. I only had to watch like the last 20 minutes at home. Did not disappoint. I think this is a real banger. Check this out. It's called Amanda. It's in Curzon, uh, Curzon Cinemas from today. It should be on the Curzon home player as well, so you may be able to watch it at home as well. Well, definitely good news if you couldn't wait to see how it ended when you got home. Um, there you go. Let's move on then to Mad About the Boy, which is out in cinemas from today. The Noel Coward story. I had no idea he was born in 1899. Well... The things I could tell you about Noel Coward before I saw this, sir, uh, and most of them relate to World War II, admittedly, but that's for a very specific reason that we'll get into shortly. Right, so, documentary from, uh, written and directed by uh, Barnaby Thompson. Now, Barnaby Thompson was one of those names, I was like, I know that name, why do I know that name? He directed the St. Trinian's movies. The, the, right. the, the last, the, the most recent, like a decade ago, like 2008, 2010, St. Trinian's movies. He, he directed those, which is a really odd claim to fame. 
He's now made this documentary about the life and times of, uh, as you say, Sir Noel Coward. Was he a Sir? Must have been a Sir. Uh, Noel Coward, um, who, you know, iconic British playwrights. Just, just yeah. one of the most iconic British playwrights of, of the last century, if ever. Like, you, you could make an argument to talk about Noel Coward in the same breath as Shakespeare. I, I, I will posit that. I will go out on that limb. I will genuinely yeah. go out on that limb. Yeah, I agree. Now, if you look at the films he wrote, we are talking, you know, the, the films, the, the works that he wrote, films, plays, etc. We are talking about things like Private Lives, Blythe Spirit, Brief Encounter, the most iconic romantic drama of all time, sod Titanic. And this is this is his story uh, narrated for us here. So there's a lot of archival footage, a lot of interview footage. There's a wealth of material here that I, I can only imagine this must have taken years to put together because it's a very intricately done uh, piece of work narrated for us by Alan Cumming and with the voice of, I'm, I'm reasonably sure, the voice of Noel Coward himself in narration form is provided by Rupert Everett. Brilliant. Which, I mean, talk about wearing your gay creds on your sleeve. They have literally <laughs> gotten Alan Cumming and Rupert Everett. Because I'm reasonably sure that if you put a gun to anyone's head and say, name two gay British superstars, Alan Cumming and Rupert Everett would be in the top five, if we're honest. Yeah. So yeah, it's the story of Noel Coward. Have a listen. Some slidish that looks like my... I study my own facade carefully. My voice is definite, harsh, rugged. How can I, start I take ruthless stock of myself in the mirror before going out. For even a polo jumper or an unfortunate tie exposes one to danger. Maybe some psychoanalyst might slap my wrist and give a twist to what goes on inside. Noel Coward is a graceful swan, gliding along whilst everything that doesn't tally with the projected image. His background, his lack of education, his homosexuality, his burning ambition, all the furious paddling is hidden beneath the waterline. Yeah, there was so much to know about mm. him. Because, of course, he was a composer, director, actor and singer on top of being a playwright. He was one of the OG multi-hyphenates, was old Noel. Yeah. And uh, now, it's a fascinating story because, as you point out, there are, there are numerous angles you can come at Noel Coward from. Now, in terms of the, 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 the biography that we have laid out here before us, it goes down uh, largely, largely the route of his career, but also with a sideline to how his life, and as you can hear from the clip, the initial disguise and eventual embrace, the public outward embrace of his sexuality would come to define both he and said career. Now, for me as well, he was a member of the Irregulars in World War II. He was one of the, the Irregulars that were the Secret Service unit sent to Washington, D.C. to bring America into the war, uh, along with... Um, uh, Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl, quite famous. And if you remember, I told you about this recently. This is the one I think should be a movie. Yeah. And uh, there's that that plays that story plays a part in in Noel Coward's you know, greater stories. It's a fascinating work, really compelling. I knew a fair bit about Noel Coward to begin with. I know a lot more now. And it, I, I say it's a, a tight ninety three. I think it's about ninety three minute documentary. It's about an, an hour twenty seven plus credits, kind of a thing. As you can hear, though got the music it's got the the atmosphere it's got the vibes it's got the chills it's got heartbreak and it's got real emotional depth and warmth and, and sadness to it it's it's a harrowing story as well as a heartwarming one mm. uh it's i think i think you you really would enjoy this to be honest with you. i think it's a, it's a really fascinating documentary 
as I've said to you before, you know, when you've watched something and you feel that you've learned something from watching it, especially about somebody so iconic, you know, this is exactly this is not going to be a movie that's that I'm going to turn away. I think um, it does look great. Mad about the boy, the Noel Coward story in cinemas from today. Okay, two movies left to go on the show today. Uh, the Boogeyman coming up, but next. I'm pretty sure you are biting at the bit to talk about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which we are going to talk about in just a minute. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show. We've got two movies left to talk about that Van has seen. The Boogeyman in a moment. But first, this is out in cinemas from today. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I am quite confident you're going to say this was a fantastic movie. Well, I mean, not to bury the lead. Yes, it, I, it was a fantastic movie. I had a fantastic time with it. I had gripes. I'm not going to say it's flawless because I was the buzz on this from like people who'd seen it stateside. Uh, Chicago critic friends of mine, for instance, was was just glowingly positive. It's the greatest animated movie of all time. It's the greatest sequel ever made. It's the greatest comic book movie ever made. First of all, the greatest comic book movie ever made is the first one of these. Just, just not to put too far a damper on that. And just to give you an idea of where I'm coming from before we review this, right? I am coming at this everything I'm about to say is coming from a place of love right I genuinely love Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, when I saw that movie in 2018 it was a genuine life-changing cinematic experience for me I wholeheartedly love that film I wept openly at the leap of faith sequence in the, the third act and you can show me just a YouTube clip of that now like, with no context to the rest of the film, just show me that clip, and you will break me as a person all over again. I think it's one of the most beautiful sequences ever put to film. And, yeah, I got to watch it in New York as well, which was just, wow. again, one of those live... Just watching Spider-Man in New York. It was an absolutely life-changing experience. Um, so now we have part two. It, it won, the previous one was the first ever comic book movie to win, um, you know, Best Animated Feature, to win, like, a Best Film Oscar. And, as well, it brought Miles Morales onto cinema screens. The, the, you know, the, the, he's a mixed-race, African-American, Hispanic um, Spider-Man, as opposed to the traditionally Caucasian Peter Parker. It was, a it was the first real multiverse-hopping superhero movie as well, which, obviously, five years later, we're now kind of sick of, because, you know, live-action Marvel's been cashing that in for half a decade. And, yeah, so now it's time for the sequel. And the basic setup is as follows. So... It is a year or two after the events of the previous movie. Miles Morales is Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. You know, he's doing the Spidey thing. He's the friendly neighborhood web-slinger. You know, he stops the muggers. He, you know, foils bank robberies, all that stuff. He's a bit of a mess because he's a teenage Spider-Man and they always are. And, you know, his, his spider activities, his web-slinging, his wall-crawling is starting to, you know, impact his both scholastic and family life as well. It's widening a rift between he and his parents. Um, it's starting to affect his grades. He's getting to that age where he needs to start looking at college and things like that. But amidst all of this as well, he finds himself pining for the friends that he made in the previous movie, his, his Spidey gang from all the alternate universe. In particular, Gwen Stacy who, you know, in this iteration was Spider-Gwen. She was the alternate Spider-Man from another universe in which she had been bitten by the spider instead of Peter Parker. And a sort of a will-they-won't-they they romance had become between the pair. 
they then cross paths again when it transpires that Gwen has been recruited by a secret spider society made up of all the elite Spider-Men from across the multiverse and led by Spider-Man 2099, who's voiced here for the screen by Oscar Isaac. And Miles finds himself like aspiring to be part of this team because they're meant to represent the best of the best, but also soon finds himself at odds with their general ideology and their goals that they are working towards. I don't want to say much more than that because you can really spoil this. So I'm going to give you a clip. This is from very early in the film, about half an hour into the movie. This is uh, Miles and his parents in the guidance counselor's office. Okay. Miles's grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And AP Studio Art. <laughs> he takes after his uncle. A minus in English. She's a tough grader. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying to kill your mother? Calmate, mami. Eso no es my fault. ¿Qué es eso que esto no es mi fault? ¿Tú estás tomando una clase en español? I just missed a few classes. Oh, just a few classes. Well, what's a few? I mean, you know, like... Five? 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 actually six you're dead see i have one issue with movies oh. like this and yeah. that is once i've seen a, a, an actual movie such as mm. spider-man to go mm. to animation that is based on the same story as something that i've seen that is not animated i find that really hard i love all the spider-man movies and mm. i feel to go to this i'm gonna struggle tell me why no. i won't um, I mean, I'll be honest, I could give you a very, very good reason, but it would involve spoilers, and I'm not going to oh. do that, especially, <laughs> not, especially not publicly. Um, yeah. Now, you've you've shown your son the first one of these, I think, haven't you, at some point? Yes, yes. Right. So, you're, you're aware this is a very, very distinct style of animation. I'd say style as if there's one. This is a very distinct work of animation. There is a blending of different techniques. The first movie noticeably featured a an inventive use of frame rates amalgamation that just absolutely blows me away and actually involves math. Uh, this is, there's a lot more of the same. I do think the first hour of this could have been trimmed down. The movie clocks in at two hours, 20 minutes, incidentally. So it's a good wow. chunk longer than the first one. Um, you could trim, I think, the first hour of this down to at least 35, 40 minutes, maybe. Like you could, you could chop a lot out of it. But having said that, there isn't really an ounce of fat on it at all. They've been quite clever with the marketing. They've managed to, to keep a, a good deal under their proverbial hat. Um, some, the, the, some of the new Spider-Men are absolutely brilliant. Um, some of the old Spider-Man stuff that we've seen is still brilliant. Uh, Shamik Moore's uh, portrayal of Miles Morales continues to be absolutely endearing, a really great lead. Uh, Hayley Steinfeld as Gwen is still, you know, one of the one of the absolute added value elements of, the, of you know why you would do this in animation. But again, so, so a reason to do this in animation that you wouldn't in live action is you can get away with a, a lot bigger a scope. There are things that you will see in this movie that it would be beyond the realm of physics to try and put into live action. And I mean literal, literally beyond the realm of physics. And it's phenomenal. You do get the return, for instance, of, of, of Jake Johnston, for instance, as Peter B. Parker, the sort of dad bod, schlubby Peter Parker. Who, not as much screen time as I would have liked. Uh, my very, very favorite Spider-Man is apparently in there, but I couldn't spot him. Because if you include unnamed Spider-Man, there are 280 Spider-Men in this movie. Wow. 
Yeah, if you go with named ones, I think it's 95. Like wow. that, that actually have assigned names. There, there is a lot in here that is just going to absolutely just just boggle the mind. Like, wow, just like who even thought to include that? Um, there is one of the greatest retcons in the history of cinema. I know that sounds like hyperbole. It's not. This movie pulls off one of the most ruthlessly efficient and well-executed retcons, retroactive continuity, if you're not aware of that. It's when you take something that, you know, was one thing before, and you say, actually, it didn't mean that. Uh, it actually now means this. That, that's okay. a retcon. Yeah, um, yeah. They pull off one of those in this that you just think, that is absolutely inspired, and it works flawlessly. It does, in turn, lead to them accidentally spoiling one of their own twist slash pivots depending on how you see it because it is a movie that you can interpret different ways at times like i say there's some great gags some great cameos there is the mother of all deep cut cameo gags in this and i i don't mean i, I don't mean anything predictable i don't i don't mean like oh here's toby mcguire or nothing like that N nothing like predictable like that that you could have seen coming up nothing like that no and incidentally, no, no, he doesn't turn up. In this. But there is the mother of all deep cut cameos in this that just had me going. But it's way, I saw this in a screen full of film critics. I was cackling like a chimp. And I was alone doing that in that room. Because I, I think everyone else thought I was a maniac. Because I, I think I was the only one in the room that read comics. But, uh, or, or, or happened to know who that person specifically was. Or the three levels on which their appearance was hilarious. You put it this way, you will know when you see it. You really will. Um, now, in terms of what you could compare this to, you've got a four-star film. I think the first is a five, this is a four. Now, the reason I'm giving it a four is for the obvious comparison points I'm about to make. You can't enjoy this without having seen the first. It doesn't make a whole heap of sense because it does deal with the consequences of the first one. It is also, rather like Fast X, not a finished film. This does. This is part one of a finale. We have got Beyond the Spider-Verse to come next year. I think it's next May, specifically. Yeah. Now, if you're going to compare this to anything, I would say, imagine Pirates of the Caribbean 2 Dead Man's Chest but it's pulled off to the extent, the quality level, and the extreme of Back to the Future 2. Wow. Like you, could, you, could go, you could go that way with it. You've got yeah. a movie with all their heft and the upscaled ambition of Dead Man's Chest, but it's about as good as Back to the Future 2. Maybe a little bit convoluted and overlong, but yeah. Also, the soundtrack is nowhere near as good as the first one. I, that was going to be what I, my next question. I was yeah. going to say, what's the soundtrack like? Because that first one, that first soundtrack. I'm sorry, but you could you could take you could just take the CD of that first set, that first movie soundtrack. Yeah. Like, walk into a club, slip it on the DJ deck, just hit shuffle, and just leave it there for the night, and it would work. It would absolutely work. You could do that with the, the first Spider Verse soundtrack. I don't think you can with this. It's just nowhere near as efficient, and the biggest reason to give this four stars instead of five. For my money is there is not a moment in this film that's half as good as the leap of faith sequence from the first one and that that is the benchmark that is having said that whomsoever thought to get andy sandberg of all people to voice the single most despised character in the history of spider-man chef's kiss <laughs> give that person a raise Give them a raise. 
nobody ever allow Andy Samberg to pay for his own drinks ever again. Job well done, people. Good sequel. I liked it a lot. Didn't love it like I loved the first one, but I liked it a lot to a four-star degree. I'd even maybe push it to four and a half in a pinch, if I'm honest. There you go. Well, if you want to make your own mind up, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is in cinemas from today. Okay, next and finally, uh, we're going to talk about The Boogeyman. Same writers as A Quiet Place, I think, isn't it? I uh, well, I mean, it, I mean, it's based on uh, it's based on a novel by Stephen King. But yeah, I think it's I think it's Scott Beck who did uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods. Am I reading it right? Yeah, I think I think so. uh, yeah, yeah, they did they did Quiet Place, I believe. Yeah. Well, we're going to see what you thought of the movie in just a second. The Boogeyman out in cinemas from today. Stay there to find out what Van thought. Hello and welcome back. We have got one last movie to talk about then uh, before we end the show. It is The Boogeyman in cinemas from today. I don't need to tell you this is a horror really, do I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the name does not suggest rom-com, does it? <laughs> no. No. So, um, well, IMDb, <clears throat> as we pointed out, nicely lists this as uh, its entire plot as adaptation of Stephen King's The Boogeyman. Now, are you overly familiar with Stephen King's The Boogeyman? Uh, no, I've, 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 I know some of his work, but I have not read that. So, The Boogeyman was a short story that was written for I think Chevalier magazine in the early seventies and was collected into I want to say nineteen seventy eight Night Shift. Stephen King's collection of short stories. I was loaned a copy of Night Shift by my friend Anthony Pino, who I'm still friends with to this day. I was loaned a copy of this when I was 10 years old. And the 25-page story that makes up The Boogeyman is still, to this day, one of the most terrifying things I have ever read. Like, genuinely. And I mean, I can read it right now, and it will still chill me to the core the exact same way I did when I was 10 years old. It's a horrifying story. Now, <clears throat> given that it's 25 pages long, there's not an awful lot you can base a full feature-length film out of. I mean, this goes on for, I think, about 98, 98, 98 minutes, yes, 98 minutes exactly. Can't really blow 25 pages into 98 minutes. Although, you know, they did like 60, into took 60 pages to become the Shawshank Redemption, and that's a pretty faithful adaptation. Now... What they have done here is they have taken the original short story and compressed that to basically make up about two minutes of screen time. And that then becomes effectively a sort of a curse that the, that the rest of the film involves dealing with. So, in, in the original short story, a character named Lester Billings goes to a psychiatrist and tells the story of how his three children, born consecutively, each died in the crib. Each one died of SIDS or cot death, various things like that. And uh, within the context of the original book, on the second occasion, he runs in the room and he thinks he sees something that looks a bit like a demon and it haunts him and it scars him for life. And, yeah, and then he gives up the idea of ever having kids. His wife then accidentally gets pregnant down the line and he's terrified they have another kid and he literally walks in to find the devil shaking the baby in the crib. That's how the, the, the short story ended. Now, we get told this, effectively, the same story, in two minutes of screen time, starring David Desmolchin as Lester Billings. Now, Desmolchin is, at this point, I think mostly known for his role in the Ant-Man movies, in uh, The Suicide Squad, in which he was the Polka Dot Man. He's a really, really great 
creepy horror 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 loving performer. Like he he loves a horror flick. He's like friends with James Gunn as well. And um, the actual protagonist of the movie, though, is the daughter of the psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist is played here by Chris Messina, who you know he tells this story to. He has two daughters. The family are going through a bereavement of their own, with the mum having recently passed away in, I think it's a drink-driving accident. But the teenage elder daughter is played by Sophie Thatcher. The younger daughter is played by, I'm just trying to get the name of the young actress, her name is Vivian Lyra Blair. Now, the interesting thing about these two actresses playing the daughters, you know, the lead leads of this movie, is that both of them kind of came to prominence in the last two years by Star Wars. Sophie Thatcher is one of the space bikers from the Book of Boba Fett. Oh. She's also in Yellow Jackets at the moment, which is quite popular. And uh, Vivian Lyra Blair is the young Princess Leia from Obi-Wan Kenobi. Right. Who stole the show with her little... Yeah, just a weird like coincidence that this has happened. And what you get is the story of when uh, Lester Billings tells his story, then dies himself by his own hand, and it very quickly transpires that said curse that afflicted his family may have transferred to them. So effectively, it's King does the ring. Have a clip. This is Lester spinning his yarn. Suck the life right out of them. Even if the first one was an accident, it still made us susceptible. Susceptible. To what? I don't know exactly. I only glimpsed it once. Before my Annie's neck broke. Before they died, my kids, I thought it was just their imaginations getting the better of them. And my oldest tried drawing it for me. What is this supposed to be? It's the thing that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention. So I, I get what you're saying. It, technically, it's not an adaptation of the Stephen King book. It's kind of more of... It, wait, it is an adaptation for two minutes, and then it's a continuation and expansion of. Yeah. And to be fair, that's absolutely the way to go. Like I say, I don't think you could make a full movie out of The Boogeyman. I think this is a really well done, really effective movie. As you point out, it's uh, written by uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods. It's Brian Woods and Brian Woods who gave us you know, the Quiet Place movies. Um, yeah. Directed, I think it's the third feature from Rob Savage, who did Host. It was quite a buzzy uh, Zoom-based uh, seance movie during lockdown. Uh, yeah. Then did Dashcam and has now done this. He actually turned up to our screening and spanned some nonsense about it being scientifically the scariest movie ever made. And you're thinking, yes, yeah, steady on, pal, come on. I'm no stranger to believe in my own hype, but get a grip. Um, there are some decent, there, there are some really decent jump scares in this. Like, this is going to be the weekend evening date movie for the next few weeks. It's brilliantly creepy, like wonderfully atmospheric. It does fall into the same trap that pretty much every modern creature-based horror movie of the last decade or so has fallen victim to, which is, I miss the days of practical creature effects because the CG stuff just isn't convincing. It really yeah. isn't. I'm, I'm thinking of movies like Mama when I say that. Um, this just doesn't quite work there, to be to be really honest. Like it, when, it, when it reveals, when it tips its hand, it, it, it kind of drops the ball a little bit. But it's in building that suspense and building that tension this really makes its name. Sophie Thatcher is a great lead. I think Vivian Lyra Blair as well. 
something to behold. I think a, a really compelling young actress. I think she's really got something. I will watch Christmasina in anything because I'm a big fan of The Newsroom and he was great in that, that movie Devil as well from 2010. Um, uh, David Espulchin's my MVP because for, he gets two minutes of screen time and he just owns this movie. He just he, he shows up ready to play. He is all flop, sweat and trembles and he really sells it. It is a brilliantly creepy movie. Like I say, it drops the ball a bit when it comes time to sort of, you know, reveal the monster as all these things are want to do. But in getting there, this will, you know, this will, this will, I don't want to use the, the, the term, this will beep you right up. You know what I mean? Bleep, this will bleep, <laughs> this will bleep you right up, sir. Good and proper. Like wonderfully atmospheric. Really. I mean, like the production design of this, the cinematography of it. I, I don't think it's as good a horror movie as, for instance, The Black Phone was last year but i think it's a good like it, it, it's a good well you, you you'll mention it in the same breath you you put it up there with you know that barbarian like i think it's it's a great king movie like we're talking about movies based on the works of king even though it's not you know the most faithful of ones it's good king it's 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 it's, it's, it's decent king definitely i'd, I'd go with that I just love the fact that the clip that you have to play is them whispering after it being written by the same people as A Quiet Place. But, you know, that said, A Quiet Place, I absolutely loved. And mm. I can almost, I can tell from what you've said about this movie that there's kind of a lot of similarities with the way that it's it's done. Um, effects or, you know, yeah. the, the way that you have the suspense and that's enough for me for a horror movie you know uh, i'm in absolutely in with this yeah no I, th I think this 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 will this will rock you to your core this is and the other thing is as well because it's such a universal universally terrifying concept like he says in the in the clip there you know it's the thing that comes for your kid when you're not paying attention and it's that's you know that i mean that's that's a really primal thing to draw fear from because it's because of how universal it is like you can get anyone with that concept, you know what I mean? Like any anyone who like has young kids in their lives, like will be like, oh god, that's a terrifying idea. I mean, this movie. I mean, it goes hard. This movie really goes hard. I mean, this movie starts with like child murder and then somehow ratchets up from there. The opening of this movie just honestly had the entire entire IMAX screen cinema going, oh my god! Like it was one of those. Wow. Like it was really brutal, and that was the opening sequence. I mean, like I say literally opens with child murder and somehow ratchets it up from there. So it's called The Boogeyman. If you know the book, you know why you have to see this movie. If you don't know the book, it's 25 pages long. Come on, I can't do everything for you. But, you know, it's worth checking out. It's one of those movies that you probably need to have the big light on when you're watching it, if you watch it at home. The funny thing is, we were going to originally watch They made this for Disney Plus originally, and apparently oh. they test screened it, and it scored so well that like we have to put this in cinemas. Like, it has to be done. And thank God they did, because this would really would have been wasted as a streaming first but release. Excellent. Well, if you want to make your own mind up, you can go and see it, because it's out in cinemas from today. Um, now, next week, let's talk through some of the movies we're going to be talking about <clears> on the show <throat> next week. Uh, My Imaginary Country. Yes, we've got My Imaginary Country next week, as well as Chevalier, War Pony, Love Without Walls. But all of this pales in comparison to the one I know yeah. you've been looking forward to. Now. The one I know you've been looking forward to, sir. The one I know your son has been definitely looking forward to. It yep. is the seventh 
movie in the live-action Transformers series. It is Transformers Rise of the Beasts, and if you go to Leicester Square right now, you can see a 16-foot Optimus Primal and a 20-foot Optimus Prime, because I myself went and saw them and took the pics the other day. They, really yeah, you sent them to me. Home. They looked absolutely yeah. epic when you were there. They, you were like, really look at cool. this. Yeah, it's a very strange atmosphere in Leicester Square now because you've got opera screenings going on in the square itself. You've got the buskers doing like Ed Sheeran and Disney songs, and then you've got Transformers next to the Legos. <laughs> so it's a very weird. And then then you've got a Greg's that's now open till two in the morning kind of thing. It's a very weird time to be in Leicester Square at this moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, Transformers: Rise of the Beasts. I'm gonna be seeing this on Tuesday night, uh, so I will be able to. T- I'll be able to tell you before uh, before we get to doing the review exactly what it's what it's like but you know what it, it's transformers and primitives like apes and you know old-fashioned primal creatures because we did the dinobots back in the last night i think so or age of extinction i think it was so yeah, yeah. we'll uh, we'll see what happens with the primates but uh, yeah we've got those to look forward to cannot wait to hear what you think of that one uh, particularly of course uh, so of course we've got all those to look forward to next week on off screen until then i've been adam ball i've been van connor and we shall return